Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're excited about all the great things that we can offer to you in praise. Thank you for the report from Peru. Thank you for, it seems there'll be even more contact with Peru. And thank you for the Pennies for Peru program. Thank you that that has brought the gospel to so many children and brought to them other things as well, physical things, even food and nourishment. Thank you so much for the privilege that we have of now opening your word and seeing a glimpse into the future and being reminded again of the same thing we've been reminded of all evening about what a great God you are, what an awesome God you are. And I pray that you would help us each to relish in the fact that we're on your side and you're on our side. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're turning to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. I bit off a lot to chew this evening. Um, we will probably do what we did last week, and that is we'll do a, a quick survey of chapter 18, but we'll lay the foundation for it in chapter 17. I think that it will be something that will become more and more clear to us. Chapter 17 we have to work a little bit about understanding what's before us. The first point in aiding our understanding is to be sure that we realize that the action that we're going to see in chapters 17 and 18 takes place before the bold judgments that we studied last week. Understanding that we're flashing back. Chronologically, the end of chapter 16, with the pouring out of the last bowl, is actually followed immediately in time by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to end the great battle of Armageddon. We've seen that in chapter 19. But chapters 17 and 18 look back. They cover events during the tribulation period. So I, I think that will help in our understanding as we look at them. In chapter 17 and chapter 18, we're going to be seeing a lot of things that are figurative. And you've heard me say many times we believe in a literal translation of the Scriptures. Literal doesn't mean there can't be literary elements to that, and figurative language is one of those literary elements that could certainly be there. But I think we'll know immediately that what is spoken of here is meant to be figurative. We're going to be speaking about two ladies, one in chapter 17, one in chapter 18. But they will be in a figurative sense. And uh, again, we'll see what they stand for in just a few moments. Let me read the first six verses. And uh, I call this in the outline the great prostitute. Some of you who've studied this in the past, maybe deep in the past, will remember the great harlot was the reference before. Uh, words change, but I believe that the, uh, the meaning is going to be exactly the same. So verses 1 through 6, we'll start with them. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns." 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So what about the prostitute does the angel want to show John? What is there that is there? One of the seven angels from chapter 16 came to John and wanted to take John in a flashback back to see what was going on during the tribulation period earlier. But he wanted to show something very particular about the great prostitute. He wanted John and therefore John's readers to understand the judgment that would belong to the great prostitute. She'd gotten away with excessive sin to this point, but no longer. As Mickey alluded to the fact that in one hour, a lot of things were happening. In one hour, that which was built up into this empire, both religious and commercial, would be dashed. Reminds us of the verse in Scripture, be sure your sin will find you out. And this is the time when it's being found out and when it's being punished. What else are we told about the great prostitute? Let's try to find out who she is or whom she represents. We read, and if you glance, keep glancing at the Scriptures, we read that she's seated on many waters. Now, if you imagine that scene, she's seated on many waters. Are we to visualize a migrating duck or a goose going from one body of water to another? Uh, obviously not. This is figurative language. But we don't have to wonder because verse 15, we haven't read that far yet, but verse 15 tells us what it is that we're to see in this. Verse 15, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So she's not seated on H2O waters. She's not seated on the sea. She's seated on a group of people. Prostitute controls a large number of people, in fact. It says in one way or another, she has a worldwide influence. The prostitute, it says, sits on many waters. So there are many people who are going to be involved with this prostitute. Verse 2, she has an effect, it says, on the rulers of the world and on their subjects. Remember, we're talking about many, many people. We're talking about a whole lot of people, a percentage of the world's population at this particular time. Well, what kind of an effect did she have? It tells us the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her. The dwellers on earth were drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And let me stop and ask another question. Are we to believe that we are speaking of one literal loose woman who's having physical relationships with the kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the earth? And the answer would have to be no. We're not talking about one loose woman. We're talking about somebody who is representative of something that is far bigger than any one person. And we'll see that as we go on. What we're seeing here is that the woman must represent a system. And the prostitution, the sexual immorality, must be referring to that of a spiritual nature. 
It even mentions the dwellers of the earth would be involved with her. That's a reference all through Revelation. Every time you see that, some of your translations will say the inhabitants of the earth or the dwellers of the earth. That's talking about unbelievers as opposed to the saints, the people of God. And so we've got something that is interacting with the leaders of the world and the inhabitants or the dwellers of the world, the unsaved. It is a lot of people. It can't possibly be one individual. And we also keep seeing the word abomination through here. That's something that is a a direct sin against God. You could even say that it carries over into the religious element most of the time. So we have a situation here where sexual immorality, fornication, prostitution, adultery, etc., are often used to describe those who have fallen spiritually, those who have gone away from God rather than toward Him. They've betrayed God, and they've done it just as sometimes spouses betray each other. That metaphor is all over the Scriptures. So during the tribulation, all the world's many religions will be united into one great false world religion. The great prostitute represents the world church at that time. Religion will be used by the Antichrist to unite the world economically, militarily, politically, and even culturally. But that Antichrist, that beast, is going to be working in league with this one world religion, one world church. And it's an amazing relationship that they have, as we're going to see as we keep going forward. During the tribulation, all the world's many religions are going to be united into one. We've seen this coming for a long time. There's been an attempt for one world church for decades. Uh, These messages used to be preached when I was a child, and I would hear the messages, and I would hear about the one world government and one world religion and how it's going to come about one day. And since that time, you see nothing but the seeds of that being sown over and over again. So the great prostitute representing one world church, religion is going to be used by that Antichrist. The woman represents a system of religion. The church is the bride of Christ. What would Satan's false church, his counterfeit replica, be called from God's perspective? It would have to be called a prostitute. Uh, the, the, the bride is legitimate, but this prostitute is not. World religion is going to corrupt the rulers and their subjects during the time of the tribulation. World religion will take something from everywhere and offer something that is either familiar or acceptable to all of the religions. It will be a huge compromise. And what we will end up is a religion that if it were a dog, we would call it a mongrel because we would have something that is put together, pieced together, a little bit for you, a little bit for you, a little bit for you, and uh, we're going to try to get all of you under this one umbrella. It could even look a lot like Christianity, because there are a lot of Christians who are serious about the religion. It could look a lot like that. It will deceive millions of people, as we see in the context could very well be a combination of Protestantism, Catholicism, and humanism, but all of them gone sour. There will be something familiar and comfortable for the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the New Agers, the cults, the agnostics, and everyone outside the Orthodox Christian faith. It will look pretty good to a lot of people from a lot of vantage points. It will be a colossal ecumenism. 
when we hear about the ecumenical church, the desire to make sure that all of us are tolerant of everyone else and let's get under that same umbrella because we all believe that we want to become better human beings and we can do that. There are going to be a lot of things that will be said similar to that. Jesus Christ and the Word of God obviously will not be central. In fact, they will be excluded. We're able to see today how people are religiously uniting over a number of issues. We see how there are a lot of people, strange bedfellows sometimes you would say, who unite over some social issues. Let's clean up the streets. Let's protect the climate. Let's hug the trees, help the homeless, improve education. Not bad things, but when they become one's religion, then they become bad things. People are centering things about emotion and religious experience over a lot of things, but not God's Word. If you'll turn with me, please, quickly to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This kind of thing has been predicted. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now notice this, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Now back to Revelation chapter 17, verse 3, John was carried away in the spirit into a wilderness. Here he saw this woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And the description of that beast matches that of beast number one in Revelation chapter 13 that we've identified as Antichrist. She is riding on the back of the world government, the system of Antichrist. We see a very close relationship between world religion and the Antichrist himself. But on this occasion, it appears as if the beast is a beast of burden and religion is riding on the beast and they're, they're using each other. Artists' conception of what was seen, but again, this is not the literal figure, but you can see that uh, if, if you want to picture the imagery that is there, this is a, a good shot of it. At this point in the tribulation, world religion and world government have an uneasy alliance. There is no separation of church and state at all. World government is actually controlled at this time by world religion. The woman is riding the beast, remember. The beast is supporting the woman. Religion is being used for a diabolical purpose. Verse 4, the woman was dressed to kill, as prostitutes commonly are. She dressed to show a regal splendor, wealth, ostentation, But at the same time, she was carrying a cup of filth, golden cup, strange, golden on the outside, but filth on the inside. The outward show is spectacular, but that didn't help to clean up the filth. Verse 5, her mystery title was Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And again, you see that word taking us into a religious sphere. It was branded, actually, on her forehead. 
The symbolism of spiritual adultery is not ordinarily used of pagan nations who don't worship God. They're not adulterous because they never had a relationship with him to begin with. But it is used of people who outwardly carry the name of God while actually worshiping and serving other gods. Verse 6. The woman was not moderately drinking. She was not a little tipsy. She was drunk with the blood of those who spoke out for Jesus. Religion persecuted the followers of Jesus. We see it all over the world today, where in the name of some religion, Christians are being killed at this minute. They're being persecuted, burned out. They're losing the means to make a livelihood. This is happening now all over the world. During the tribulation period, those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ will be under severe persecution. Religion persecuted then the followers of Jesus. I said before, the woman was dressed to kill. You could take that literally too, because that's what she was doing. When we come to verses 7 through 18, we have an explanation of this great prostitute. So we're not really left to our imaginations. We'll see if we've gotten it right so far. Let me read for us as you follow along verses 7 through 18. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now remember we saw that as being the Antichrist earlier in our study. And the dwellers on earth, there's that expression again, the dwellers on earth, they're unsaved people, they're the opposite of the saints. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. In other words, it's been revived, thought to be dead, but revived. And whether that's the Babylonian Empire, the empire of Antichrist, Antichrist himself could be true of both of them. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also, so we've got double typology here, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, that means one who's presently in power. The other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is and is not, it is an eighth but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. So we're talking about ten future kings. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And in this case, that one hour probably means a short period of time. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind 
and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The explanation here of the great prostitute. And very quickly, let me summarize verse 7. The angel offers to explain. Verse 8 begins an explanation of the beast. The beast was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Again, that revived Roman Empire, probably the individual known as Antichrist who heads it up. The dwellers on earth are the unsaved. Verses 9 to 11 give us a twofold symbolism of the seven heads of the beast. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Some think that's a reference to Rome with its seven hills. But there are also, at the same time, seven kings. They represent seven world empires. And as best we can figure, the five that have already fallen would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. One is. That would be the Roman Empire in John's time. That was the existing empire then. The other one has not yet come. It will come out of the six. That's why we refer to the revived Roman Empire. Somehow in that part of the world will come this last one. And it will remain for a little while. Then there will be the eighth, the empire of the Antichrist. He's in the same boat as the other seven, all of whom were supporting false religion throughout all of history. They're all marked for destruction. Verses 12 through 14 explain the ten horns. There are ten kings who are future from John's time, and I would say future from our time as well. Perhaps Antichrist's empire will be divided into ten administrative regions. These ten kings are cooperating with him. They will be ruling with him. They will receive authority for a short time. They'll have one purpose. They'll give all their authority and all of their power to the beast. Their mutual purpose is described in the first part of verse 14. If you look at verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. That's the good news, for he's Lord of lords and King of kings. Those with him, which could include us, are called and chosen and faithful. Verse 15, we've seen already, explains the waters, its people. Then we read of a very abrupt change in the relationship between the prostitute and the beast. Look again at verses 16. 17 and 18. They describe the change between the prostitute and the beast. That is, the world religion and world government. Remember, the beast had been carrying the prostitute. The Antichrist, with his government, was underneath world religion. But now, the Antichrist is going to say to the woman, get off my back. It was an uneasy alliance now it's open warfare between one world religion and one world government. As we, as we see this, it's to say the Antichrist's marriage for convenience with the one world religion will not last. And here's what one writer says. Having used the false religious system to help him gain control of the world, Antichrist will discard it. In his rampant megalomania, he will want the world to worship only him. One world religion is now worship of one, and that would be Antichrist. So he gets rid totally of this world religion. He is to be worshipped now. He is ascending into power. He's deceiving the nations of the world in a big-time way. 
verse 16, the beast and the ten kings will now hate the prostitute. The pimp will have no more use for the prostitute and will destroy her. They'll make her desolate and naked. Remember how fashionably and luxuriously she was dressed back in verse 4. They will devour her flesh. They will burn her up with fire. And that graphic language of extreme violence is used to make clear that Antichrist and the Ten Kings will totally obliterate religion. And somewhere in the middle of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation of the temple will take place. All religion will end up being pointed to Antichrist. And yet if you look at verse 17, who's in control? Who's in control? There's somebody who surely by now must think he is. Everything's happening the way he wants to. He's used religion of the world and he's discarded it. But verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth, but not over the king of kings, not over the Lord of lords. And that's something that is very, very clear. The woman, according to verse 18, the great city that rules over the kings of the earth, it's that Babylon or Roman empire revived. And it's very, very clear from the scriptures what's happening. When the woman doesn't serve his purpose any longer, the beast discards her. He wants all the worship to be directed to him and him alone. Now, one of the things we can see in this is we must guard doctrinal purity. We've got to maintain loving separation from the world and from worldly religion. We can't sacrifice the purity of God's word on the altar of tolerance and compromise, which many, many churches are doing today. They're sacrificing truth for being acceptable to other people, for being tolerant of other people's views. We can't substitute what we want for what God says. In other words, there's no substitution for truth. That brings us to chapter 18. Chapter 18, and I call this Babylon the not-so-great. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to make a few comments to introduce the chapter. I'm going to read the chapter And uh, I'm not going to make a lot of comments on it. I think we'll be able to see, once we establish the identity of the woman who's figuratively used here, I think all the things will kind of fall into place for us. There are going to be similarities and differences between chapter 17 and chapter 18 in the book of Revelation. The subject of chapter 17 is the fall of Babylon the Great, the mother of spiritual immorality, the great prostitute, but she is going to be discarded. Chapter 17 details the destruction of that world religion that had been carried along on the back of world government represented by the scarlet beast, taking us back to chapter 17, verse 3. The worship of false religion was replaced by the worship of the Antichrist. The subject of chapter 18 is also the fall of Babylon the Great. There are many similarities between the two chapters. The big question is, does Babylon in chapter 18 represent something completely different than it does in chapter 17, or is it another aspect of the same thing? Now, there are going to be differences between the two women. In chapter 17, Babylon the Great is seen most prominently as a woman. In chapter 18, Babylon the Great is seen most prominently 
as a city. If you glance down at some of the verses, look at verse 10. You'll see a reference that will be made there to the the great city. And it's always the great city. Verse 16, you'll see the same thing. Alas, alas, for the great city. You'll see it again in verse 18. What city was like the great city? You'll see it in in verse 19 as well. Uh, Alas, for the great city. I'm sorry, in verse um, 21 as well. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence. So chapter 17, most prominently... Babylon, seen as a woman, chapter 18, most prominently as a city. Chapter 17, verse 2, the emphasis is on spiritual pollution. In chapter 18, the emphasis is on commercial or materialistic pollution. That's added to it. Look at chapter 18, verse 3, just to uh, get a little, little bit ahead here. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So we're talking about a woman. We're talking about a couple of aspects here. We're talking about the religious one as well as the commercial aspect that is going on here. In chapter 17, verse 6, the ruin of the woman is a result of the hatred of the beast and the ten kings. In chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, the ruin of the city is greatly mourned by the kings of the earth. So we can see that there are some differences. What's going on here? Is Babylon the Great the same thing in chapter 17 as chapter 18? The similarities would say yes, the differences would say no. But the answer to that puzzling situation is that chapter 17 and 18 present two different aspects of the same thing. Chapter 17, Babylon the Great represents the false religion. Chapter 18, Babylon the Great represents the commercial aspect of the false religious system. There is big money in religion, and there will be then. There is an intermingling of the religious and the commercial, so much so that it's very, very difficult to separate them. And that's what causes some confusion as people study these two chapters. Babylon represented a great commercial power. Babylon will be Antichrist's capital city. It'll be the center of his lucrative worldwide commercial ventures. Before us in chapter 18 is the destruction of the commerce of the world. Money will be no good anymore. Trade will be ruined. The God of greed will be gone. Now I'd like to read chapter 18. I'll make only a few comments as we go, and I think that we'll be able to see that. Gone will be world religion, and gone will be this commercial part of it as well. So chapter 18, let's pick up in verse 1. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And that's the first of many references we're going to see now to wealth and luxury. 
Verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, and this is good advice for the people of that time, it's good advice for us as well. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Notice her sins are heaped as high as the heavens. How ironic. When they built the Tower of Babel, and this is the forerunner of everything that we see here, when they built the Tower of Babel, and then later that became the city of Babylon, and Babylon was involved in emperor worship and all sorts of things going on, all in the same place. Babylon has always been a literal place where God has not been worshipped, but the opposite has taken place. Now it becomes still a literal place in the future, but there is some figurative language with regard to her. Her sins are heaped up as high as heaven. When they built the Tower of Babel, it didn't reach heaven, but their sins do according to what it says here. So her sins heaped as high as heaven. God has remembered her iniquities. Over to verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. But she's wrong. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linens, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls, even involved in human slavery, in selling slaves. All of these things were going on. Verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. 
Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. Remember the no mores, if you were with us this morning, that there's no more, no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more, no more crying. Uh, these no mores are the things that they held dear, and they're not going to have them anymore. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. There's a pride factor here. They were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. What we have, once again, if nothing else emerges from here, is the fact that there is one who will literally be here deceiving the whole world, building up a religious empire, a commercial empire, and everybody will bow down to him except for the fact that it's all according to what God had planned. Instead of being king of everything, the Antichrist is a pawn by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We see God's control in the big things. We see God's control in the little things. And I trust that each one of us will be able to rejoice that God, the great God of this universe, is our God when we've invited Christ to be our Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there's a lot for us to have covered here, a whole lot. And I hope that it won't be confusing to any of us. But where there are areas of confusion, may we all see it boiling down to the fact that one day in the future, things are going to happen exactly the way you've portrayed. And you will defeat the forces of evil in a big-time way. And you've even recorded what is going to happen, and they can do nothing about it. And we would do well to view recorded truth and live the lives you want us to live as you've called us to in light of the impending end of the heavens and the earth. So we thank you for what you've shown us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.